Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome. My name is David Longford. This is That Privacy Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I'm here with my co-hosts, Alexis Katafidis, Global Privacy Director at OneTrust Data Guidance, and of course, Eduardo Usteran, Global Co-Head of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Hogan Levels. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, David. Hey, Eduardo. Hello. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, good to, good to see you again, and um, yeah, I hope you've been well. Really, we want to get focused on a really important issue today that I know the whole world of privacy is chewing over and discussing and debating and certainly tweeting. It uh, feels like the uh, the privacy community is collectively trying to break Twitter uh, in the last 24 hours with uh, commentary on, on a huge decision which uh, will have repercussions for months and, and probably years to come in terms of international data transfers. And that's, of course, the Schrems 2 decision. And so we've organized this special privacy podcast, that privacy podcast edition today to focus on Schrems 2, as this decision from the CJEU has been labeled, to look at really our initial reaction, to kind of get a feel for what your clients uh, and partners, Eduardo and Alexis, are asking you, telling you, and take the temperature of what the privacy community is, is saying about this issue. It's been uh, yeah, a little over 24 hours, but 30 hours since the decision was released. And um, there, are, there are a lot of anticipation throughout the last few weeks and, uh, and months building up to, to yesterday when at 8.34 or so, something like that, the, uh, the CJU kind of released the, the decision and the press release, everybody digested very quickly and, uh, and started discussing uh, what it really meant. So why don't we just start with recapping what that decision was and let's just really spell out clearly for anyone listening who may have been on holiday for the, for the last few days so everyone can understand very quickly at the start of this podcast what we're talking about and then what we're going to do a very simple structure we're going to move into five or six questions obviously between you guys experience there's there's a lot to, to tap into here about what the the impact of this decision is immediately and the repercussions it might have on how companies and organizations operate in terms of international data flows long-term. So, either of you want to start with what is the Schrems 2 decision? Let's just have a quick recap of that and, uh, and go from there. Uh, Eduardo, why don't we start with you? Well, thank you very much. This has been going on for a while. In fact, um, we, we probably need to go back to 2013 when Snowden disclosed to the world all the activities of the U.S. intelligence agencies. That what happened was that, of course, that provoked a reaction in Europe, particularly the European Commission and others. And one of the ones who reacted was Max Rems, who at the time was, I think, studying law, uh, but uh, in his capacity as a both privacy activist and a user of Facebook, decided to complain to the Irish Commissioner about the fact that the transfers of data from Facebook Ireland to Facebook Inc were not in compliance with European law because of the access to data by the US government agencies. That eventually led to the first decision of the SREMS case, SREMS 1, where, as you may know, in 2015, the European Court of Justice invalidated the original safe harbor. That, what happened was that the dispute continued and 
the Irish commissioner, which originally in, in the first decision had not been able to, to, to intervene, let's say, decided to uh, look at what Facebook said, well, never mind, we cannot use the, the safe harbor because we have standard contractual clauses like everybody else. And the critical thing that happened was that the Irish commissioner said, well, we've looked at the standard contractual clauses as drafted. We're reading them in light of the original uh, European Court of Justice decision in SREMS 1. And we think that the standard contractual clauses don't provide that level of protection effectively. That led to the referral to the European Court of Justice again in Strems 2. And yesterday, the court decided to two things, mainly one, that unlike what the Irish Data Protection Commissioner was saying, the standard contractual clauses in principle are a valid mechanism, provided, of course, that they work in practice, and we can talk about that. But also, because they need to work in practice, in the context of transfers to the US, the controls on access to data by government, which were contemplated in the, in the privacy shield, were mm -hmm. not sufficiently strong. And as a result, the court, this, even though the privacy issue was not the original subject of the complaint by, by, or the concern by the Irish commissioner, the court decided to invalidate the privacy shield decision by the European Commission giving adequacy uh, to the US, to those companies in the US that were part of the privacy shield. So that's where we are. We have no privacy shield, um, we have uh, model clauses or standard contractual clauses that we need to ensure now that they work in practice. Got it. Okay, so this brings me on to the first of my six questions I'm going to ask you guys today. And um, these questions are just nice and direct. So, you know, <laughs> you can say, I don't know if, it, if it's that's the case. But I'm sure you, you'll be able to provide a lot more information uh, besides that. The first is really what you were expecting yesterday. So you've well, you've told us about that history building up to this decision. You know, what were you expecting to happen compared to what actually uh, did happen? So, obviously, we had already uh, an idea of what the court may say or may have said, because in December of last year, the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice issues his opinion. And his opinion uh, said essentially two things. One, that the standard contractual clauses again in principle were valid although they have to work in practice and what the advocate general also said was that even though the court shouldn't really look at the privacy shield because there was another case that was focusing on the privacy shield if it were to look at it his thoughts were that the privacy shield was not good enough in terms of the controls on access to data by government so mm -hmm. the court sort of followed that opinion, certainly on the model clauses, yeah. and certainly in the thinking about the, the privacy shield. And even though the Advocate General has almost um, said to the court, it's better if you don't get involved, the court said, well, I'm going to get involved because it's relevant from the point of view of, the of, of how the transfers of data to the US based on model clauses 
uh, work um, for that reason. So in a sense, it wasn't a massive, massive surprise that could not have been foreseen. But yeah. nonetheless, it's always uh, interesting to see what happens in a decision like that. Yeah. What about you, Alexis? I don't. I don't know if it came as a surprise that the privacy field was invalidated. I think more so, as Eduardo described, you know, from the advocate general opinion, that you know it got pulled a lot more to the forefront than originally planned. Um, considering you know the, the main questions that were referred to the CJU were regarding SECs. But nevertheless, I mean, when you opened up that press release at, you know, whatever time it was yesterday morning and you read the headline, um, you know, you're always a little bit taken aback, I think, when you first read it. And then, you know, you start to digest what's actually been said on the SCC part. Again, you know, um, Eduardo described it, you know, very well in terms of the advocate general, you know, stipulated that. That he thought they were going to be, you know, uh, provide adequate protection, bearing in mind X, Y, Z, which, you know, as Eduardo said, we'll probably dive into in a little bit more detail and to invalidate SCs, I think at this stage, given that everybody knows that there is ongoing work and perhaps again, maybe an issue that we'll touch on a little bit later as to what what comes next there is a lot of ongoing efforts from the european commission at the moment from the european data protection board um, regarding revisions to standard contractual clauses and you know i the, the i guess the significance of the privacy shield being invalidated should definitely not be undermined but obviously sccs are a really global mechanism of data transfers. And if they were to be struck down, I think perhaps that would leave us um, in a bit of a different position. Having said that, we we are where we are with standard contractual clauses as well um, for some of the things that organizations and authorities have to bear in mind regarding their future use, which doesn't necessarily make their usage easier in the future either. So I think as ever with these big these mixed <laughs> mixed reactions. And just on that point, Alexis, so that process to reevaluate or assess standard contractual clauses on from the commission, that's ongoing, right? That's not exactly related to this decision that that will continue. Right. Is that correct? Right. So I think obviously bearing in mind the, the CJU judgment now that we have one and they've provided a lot of detail around the considerations to bear in mind in the future. Of course, you know, the commission and the EDPD will be working hard to make sure that their recommendations and the decision are incorporated into it. Obviously, the review did come around as several other reviews are also ongoing in light of the GDPR. So, you know, we've got adequacy decisions being reviewed. We've got, you know, a lot of, a lot of other things um, happening in the background to do with 
international data transfer mechanisms, you know, there's still an expectation regarding particular codes of conduct, regarding certification mechanisms. So I think over the course of the next six months and perhaps, you know, jumping the gun a little bit here, um, we'll start to see a lot more come out now in the context of guidance around mechanisms that I think everybody has been wanting to see for a while. Okay, fine. So shield invalidated. SEC is still here, but with additional guidance. Do you guys think that's that the information provided by the CJU on SECs yesterday is more clarity for organizations, or does it make it slightly more difficult to use standard contractual clauses? How do you think that's changed the the approach organizations can take to use of SECs? I think it has changed the approach to using SCCs because, I mean, traditionally, to be honest, the SCCs were almost too good to be true because you had a restriction in the law, which was quite a severe restriction on transfers to third countries. And the way it was being perceived is that you could simply resolve it by taking this contract out of the internet for free, print it, sign it, put it in a drawer, and that was it. And mm -hmm. to be honest, that has been the mindset around standard contractual clauses. And maybe um, some organizations have looked at that more carefully and said, can we really comply with these obligations? But I've been saying for years that the obligations, particularly the, the controller to process or obligations in, um, of the 2010 set of model clauses were so, so, so strict that it would be extremely difficult for companies to comply with them without any um, sort of explanation or, or, or without really going into, into detail. So what the court is saying now is that, yes, these mechanisms exist, and yes, this is still the same as it ever was, but you need to read what it says, you need to assess whether you can comply with those obligations. And if you are the importer and you can't comply with those obligations, then you, you need to tell the exporter. So it's not saying anything radically new, but it's pointing out or flagging up the fact that when you enter into an agreement like that one, you need to be sure that you can comply with it. So essentially there's no quick fix solution for this anymore. <laughs> speaking plainly it's not a question of downloading the the template completing it and getting that you need to really look at what the uh, obligations are between each uh, party and whether they're being upheld is that more or less correct yeah and i don't think that should be a surprise to anybody you know if you enter a contract with 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 another party you would you would think that you would read the contract and assess whether you can comply with it but okay. um that that is a, that's what this the significance of this case in practice, I think it really is that now contracts and, and data transfers based on the standard contractual clauses need to be approached in a more detailed and, and thoughtful way. Okay. Lex, how do you hear people you're talking to on, on that point? Yeah, I mean, and actually it was going to be one one other question I was going to throw out to Eduardo myself, actually, uh, on what what he's seeing um, from organizations on this. I mean, from 
you know, various things I've seen online and the Twitter feeds and a couple of webinars that I've joined um, over the last day. There's definitely a concern I can see from organizations in terms of their ability to assess adequacy and whether the proper measures are being taken, especially when you think about just how extensive data flows are. Um, obviously, one of the key things that uh, I think everybody noted and your, yourself, Eduardo, is that you know international data flows don't just stop overnight. They are inherent within the way we work in the world today. So, but coming back to your point, David, I think there there is guidance needed for organizations in terms of how they can assess the organizations they're entering into contracts with. I think obviously there's a lot of that already embedded in terms of vendor risk management processes, as Eduardo already highlighted. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise that you, you know you carry out due diligence on the third parties that you work with. But there's also a certain element of assessing whether the jurisdiction that you're going to be transferring data to will be able to provide safeguards, you know, and whether that third party will be able to ensure safeguards, bearing in mind the jurisdictions that it's operating in. So what's, I, I guess, at this stage, I might throw it over to you, Eduardo. What do you think on this assessment that seems to now be in the course of organizations, but also data protection authorities, I guess, in their assessment of organizations' compliance with uh, the contractual clauses that they've entered into? So I think it is not a small task because in reality, the assessment is not so much reading those clauses and say, can I comply with these obligations? If I'm an importer, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I, I don't know. Uh, ensure that my sub-processors are subject to these obligations and so on. That's relatively straightforward. You may need a lawyer, but it's not difficult. <laughs> but what is more difficult is to assess whether there is anything in the law of the country where the data is being transferred that may right, get right. in the way of compliance. That's a lot more difficult, particularly in the context of uh, surveillance and government access to data. Governments may have all sorts of powers well beyond the, the, the two powers that are described in the decision uh, right, to have right. access to data. And there are all kinds of government agencies with different uh, levels of powers and different attitudes towards access to data. So to understand whether the impact of those powers and those laws could really affect compliance with the with the standard contractual clauses. That's quite an undertaking, yeah, and I think yeah. that's that's what uh, I think is going to generate a fair amount of debate. And that what we said before, Eduardo, when we were saying about well, of course, anyone signing a contract should do due diligence on whether the other party can uphold it, and the the, the law of that country is uh, of, a, of a required standard. But I suppose. On the other side of the fence, that's what the average privacy pro might say. Like this is too much of an obligation for me to understand whether the you know the national security relationship between country X's government and uh, our government is is sufficient. Do you see what I mean? That seems to be too much of a burden for the privacy person to 
to look into, to research, to be able to understand and make and make that decision. Not in maybe the US case or some, but when you go globally, maybe that's too big a, a task. What, what, what do you think about that? That's the, the point globally is a key one here because a lot of focus, of course, on this case is around the US because the, the original transfer, which was the, the at the core of the dispute was transfers from Europe to the US. But the principle applies to any situations where the standard contractual clauses are used. And frankly, the, the world has many different countries. It's not just Europe and the US. So I've seen standard contractual clauses being used as global intergroup agreements or global data processing agreements where the recipients may be based anywhere in the world. So what we are contemplating now is a situation where one would need to consider whether the laws of those recipient countries, wherever they are in the world, can have an impact. And to be honest, there is a lot, a, a lot of information out there, maybe thanks to these cases, but a lot of information out there about what the position is in the US. And the Advocate General went into something like, I don't know, 40 pages of analysis in, in his opinion, and the, and the the decision is a bit shorter, but it yeah, looks yeah. at all the provisions under you. Well, not all, but some of the provisions under U.S. law that may have an impact here. But what about other countries that we don't know that much about? You know, what is what are the equivalent of of the of of the Section 702 of FISA in China or in Russia? What do we know about that? And I think that that is the other dimension of this case that is really really important. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to understand what a data protection framework exists in a, a particular country, but it's another thing to, you know, conduct an assessment yourself, right? And that's a different kind of uh, level of detail required. Sorry, Alexis, you were going to say. No, I was just going to say that just on this difficulty, that I think we can draw a comparison or a similarity to um, the adequacy decisions provided by the European Commission. and. Um, you know, we can see the amount of time, effort, analysis that the European Commission undertakes when assessing a jurisdiction's framework um, in order to provide an adequacy decision. And, you know, we've got many jurisdictions that are seeking to be provided with an adequate dis adequacy decision. You know, we'll probably talk a little bit about the UK um, and how that will work out as well. A bit closer to home, so it's it's as Eduardo says, it's it's definitely not um, an easy undertaking um, to be able to be aware of all of the different laws and circumstances that might arise in jurisdictions all over the world for this particular um, scenario. So, I think it's something that we we will still need some some guidance on um, i think everybody is very much looking forward to the reaction of the european data protection board um, i know the european commission has come out already and said that it will be working with its u.s counterparts the department of commerce etc to, to find a solution i think that's a little bit more limited to the privacy shield 
rather than to standard contractual clauses. But I think it'll be interesting to see what the EDPB comes out and says. I think, you know, today's the day after. So it's, you know, Friday the 17th. Um, I've read reports that the DPAs are gathering today to discuss under the EDPB. And, you know, maybe early next week, we'll, we'll see some initial statements. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, the Department of Commerce then, I mean, they were very quick to react and put out a, quite a, um, a clear press release. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because it obviously expressed disappointment in the decision, and but it also said that it regards the Privacy Shield as still operating, in as many words. How do you see that statement? I think the position of the US government um, is that as a framework, the privacy shield delivers data protection in accordance with European standards. That was their position before yesterday, and that will be the position today. Um, and there are, there are two aspects to the privacy shield. One is the obligations on those companies that are part of the privacy shield. So the, 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 the privacy shield principles, if you want, those obligations are almost the same or, or are meant to be the same as the clauses in the model clauses or the principles in, in the model clauses. So that element of the privacy shield was not questioned by the court. That element of the, of the privacy shield is something that, for all we know, data protection authorities themselves over the past few years since it's been in operation have said, okay, well, these are the things to improve, these are the things that we need to make sure happen, but no one has said, oh, this is this is not good enough. Um, so that element still remains. The, the, the bit that has been questioned, and, and, and there is one very specific aspect that has been really questioned, which is in relation to the remedies that individuals have when the data is accessed by government agencies and the ability of individuals to seek some kind of judicial remedy, which the US, which US law stops short of, and what the privacy shield introduced, and this was a creation of the privacy shield, was the role of the ombudsman as, as, as a sort of semi-judicial uh, mechanism to try to deal with those disputes. That's what the court looked at and said, well, actually, is semi-judicial, but it's not really judicial in the European sense of, of, of the word. And you know, that, that was not a, a, a clear-cut decision to be made in, 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 in any event, because you need to look at what's the effect of this, um, of this entity, of this institution. So from that perspective, even though we are seeing, and, and as Alexis said, the headline yesterday was that the, the, the court invalidates the decision that is the adequacy decision by the commission, but that doesn't mean that the framework itself is, is not potentially a valid framework or a framework that could be safe by adding other things behind the scenes to make it work. So for the, I think that's, that's the reason why um, the, the, the privacy chain as such hasn't been destroyed. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that, uh, Edward. Let's move on to what privacy professionals are, are doing today. So um, everybody, you know, discovering this yesterday and reacting to it. 
I was saying to a couple of people I was talking to yesterday, I imagine the first thing you'll be thinking is, how do I explain this internally? <laughs> I've got a board, I've got colleagues who don't work in privacy and don't know who Max Schrems is. <laughs> ah, how do I break it down? Is there like a deck? <laughs> Maybe we should produce one, right? a five point deck or something for every private professional to say, hey, board, you know, uh, I won't send you a two page document. Just look at this PowerPoint. Anyway, that that would be the first <laughs> Maybe I'd think about well, maybe this podcast will be played in uh, will be. Uh, at, at the board meetings uh, and everybody will be, here, will be able to hear what we're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so internal communication is hard as it ever is with these things, but um, everybody's got to do that in their own way, I suppose. What are the other practical things you'll be doing? Whether, you know, we could take it as whether you're one of those 5,000 organizations who've sold up to Privacy Shield or you're a, uh, you know, an EU organization who has SCCs in place anyway and is not affected directly by the invalidation, but is thinking about the future. Like, what kind of practical steps are people taking, or how are people uh, seeing the, their job in the next few days and weeks to, to kind of protect their organizations as much as possible? What are you hearing? Well, I, I think it's about coming up with a plan B, uh, but because, uh, or, or certainly if you were relying on the privacy shield you definitely need to come up with plan b pretty quickly but even if you weren't the next the next action i guess will be to really see as we were discussing whether the contracts that you have in place are the contracts that deliver the protection that you're supposed to have and the question could be so what if you have ten thousand of these contracts well you're going to have to prioritize some of them but uh, so I think we're still the, the dust is still settling, to be honest. After after yesterday, but the the clear actions need to be aimed at ensuring that the certainty that we had until now continues to be there to the extent possible, because the reality is that no one is going to say, "Oh, sorry, we, I guess we can't send data abroad, so let's just localize all of our servers in in our office here." So that's, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think that could even happen if, even if, if, if someone wants it. So the reality is that you're going to have to look at those mechanisms that are uh, available. Use the European Court of Justice guidance precisely as that, as saying, OK, what, what, what is this telling me? And try your best to, to protect the data and defend in the, in, in the event that uh, a, a customer or, uh, or a privacy activist or regulator raises any issues, make sure that you've got an answer to, the, to, to that question and you say, well, I my plan B is in progress. Has the Irish Commissioner put out a statement yet? Has the DPC released a press release or anything? Alexis, have you seen? Yeah, they, they have done. Um, they, they put out a short press release yesterday, um, similar to a few other authorities that, you know, um, initial um, taking on the decision and that, you know, it, it does need further analysis and that likewise, they're going to be working with the EDPB to, to see what might need to be put in place. One, 
One question I, I had, Eduardo, um, just thinking about those those plan Bs um, that organizations might need to put in place, especially as you highlighted those that were purely using the privacy shield and you know don't necessarily have another mechanism in place. One thing that I know that was talked about a little bit in the decision was around binding corporate rules, and you know there wasn't too much analysis in the way of whether we would see potentially something similar happen to to bcrs um obviously we've had a we've had an examination of the privacy shield we've had an, an examination of standard contractual clauses now do you expect bcrs to come under review as well bcr uh are in a sense, constantly under under review because they need to be approved by data protection authorities. But but more to the point, BCR of course were not included in the uh, in the in the case. Were not mentioned in the decision, right. and for that reason, um, they are off the hook of officially at least. And but there is something more important to be said about BCR, which is they actually deal normally if, if 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 a set of bcr is properly drafted and i'm sure that all of the ones that have been approved will be properly drafted because of the level of scrutiny that they receive if that's the case i can guarantee that that set of bcr will go much farther than the standard contractual clauses in dealing with how to handle government requests for for access to data and government and data disclosures because that's a requirement of the BCR itself, and it has always been. So mm -hmm. BCR as are an example and perhaps a, a model to follow from the point of view of the of the drafting, even if you rely on contractual solutions, in terms of the way in which they deal with requests for government access to, to data. So that that's the that is the greatest, I guess, benefit of, of binding corporate rules. Do you potentially see, as you were saying, maybe DPAs utilizing the BCR framework as their model of guidance um, in maybe recommending? Because I guess, you know, obviously BCR is very much encapsulate the principle of accountability as you were describing. Um, and obviously that's the, the main, you know, focus under the GDPR as well. Do you see I guess it comes back to your, you know, previous point on the plan B again of documentation and preparedness. It seems like that's a very clear message that organizations can take away today is, you know, to, to re-examine all data flows, to make sure that everything is documented, that you've, you know, provided reasons for the decisions that you've taken. It seems in a way that, it, it all contributes towards a framework like BCRs, which um, maybe you know being approved by the DPAs and that come under a lot more scrutiny or or obviously a higher standard. But it seems that the the ethos of BCRs might be uh, encapsulated in the way that organizations approach the future of international data flows. Well, I would like to think so, but uh, let me make this very clear. BCR are not a quick fix. You know, it's not a, a plan B that you can sort of pull out of the 
plus it and, and put it into place tomorrow. It's a, it's a long-term solution and a, and a real endeavor to, to, to put in place, implement, and get authorization from data protection authorities on your BCR program. And if what you are saying is going to be right, then we're going to have to see changes in the way BCR are handled, particularly the approval process, because they cannot be a credible, a truly credible solution for everybody. If you if you need to spend two or three years trying to demonstrate beyond all reasonable doubt almost that the BCR deliver the same level of protection as the mother clauses. You know, so I, I think we need to be realistic here. I think BCR, of course, they are the future of global data protection for any organization that operates globally. Of course, they are. it's been the case since you know, 2003 when the idea was crafted. But in practice, it needs to be done in a much more seamless way from the point of view of, of again, what the expectations are, the flexibility that they provide. BCR shouldn't become a pattern. There shouldn't be a sort of model BCR that one size fits all. Because that the essence of BCR is precisely that you address data protection in a way that suits, yes, meets the principle, but suits your organization. And then there has to be an element of trust, in my view, by the regulatory community when, some, when an organization approaches them and says, here's my BCR, what do you think? And I think if you approach that in a way where you're trying to catch the weaknesses, uh, I guess maybe as the way a lawyer would do. But um, if that is the attitude, then you're not you're not really going to turn BCR into what I think the DPAs and the European Commission and everyone else would like to see BCR becoming, which is a model of of compliance, which uh, is 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 a win-win situation for everybody. So I think it's, it's work in practice for sure. But if anything, we should use this decision as a way of supporting this idea that BCR is the way forward. We tackled SCCs, we tackled privacy shields, we had a look at BCRs. Obviously, one of the other main mechanisms that we've touched on um, slightly are the European Commission's adequacy decisions, which um, the European Commission is obviously undertaking um, its own uh, review and assessment of these decisions at the moment. And there are a lot of jurisdictions that are working really, uh, really hard in making sure that their frameworks uphold um, the European Commission's expectations. Do you think that um, the European Commission's maybe focus of work um, might change slightly because as we touched on earlier, it, it takes time, you know, just like BCRs, you know, they take a few years to um, be, be certified. Adequacy decisions likewise take a few years and we don't have that many adequacy decisions at the moment. Do you see that as a viable long-term solution? Well, for, so from some jurisdictions, certainly, but I don't think that the decision is going to change the way the European Commission necessarily approaches um, adequacy decisions, because the court hasn't said anything that we hadn't really seen before. The, mm -hmm. And the, the adequacy determination process already includes 
an assessment of the type of controls that governments have in terms of their own access to personal information. So I think nothing has, has changed in that respect. It's just that it, it, it does give an element of focus or another, another uh, set of criteria, but equivalent to what we've right. seen before, but another set of criteria for the commission to read. But is that going to change the way they, they look at it? I don't think it should, because it should have been like that from, from the beginning. Sure. And I know uh, we mentioned it in the beginning, but do you think since it won't really change the way the European Commission um, will be examining jurisdictions, do you think there's any future for a UK adequacy decision? Uh, where, where do you think we stand on that today? I know that there's been a couple of different things floating around very recently. You know, the, there was a communication that was released that um, the European Commission was trying to work out um, a potential way for an adequacy decision to be possibly in place by the end of the transition period. Um, but obviously that rests on several other various elements also at play. Where do you think we are with, with the UK receiving that? So, um, unfortunately, that's the bit of my of the crystal ball I bought uh, when I was on lockdown that doesn't actually work <laughs> for some reason. Right. Anyway, right, right. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of um, difficult for me to predict that without my crystal ball working uh, operation operating properly. But I think it is the issue is this. An adequacy decision is essentially a legal determination of adequacy, where you are comparing a, a jurisdiction's legal framework against the European model. And we all know, and the court was talking about that uh, yesterday, that it has to be essentially equivalent. Okay, it doesn't have to be identical, but it, it's got to be essentially equivalent. And we have a history of what that what that means. So. That means a legal analysis of that framework and how it works in practice, and it's essentially what the law says, what uh, what the, are the powers of the regulatory authority, what rights individuals have, what controls exist on, on, again, government access to data. And that is a legal assessment. The challenge with this is that adequacy has such economic and, and uh, wider implications that it becomes a very political decision. And in the context of the UK and Brexit, which of course is a, is a political decision, it's not a legal decision made by lawyers, it's just it's a political decision, uh, that is very, is very difficult, I think, to um, sort of separate the legal analysis from the political dimension. Right. And I don't think I'm saying anything radically uh, <laughs> spectacular here, but I, I think that's that's the challenge in in trying to determine what the the outcome would be. If you were asking me as a lawyer, I would say I think it's uh, it's, it's it's obvious that the UK will get adequacy because the law is the same. It's the GDPR for goodness sake. But the, the but if you look at it from the point of view of someone who lives in the real world. <laughs> and lawyers, <laughs> I think it's much. It's a much more difficult um, thing to 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 call because exactly because of what what I'm saying about the 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 Brexit dimension. So 
one would think that the European Commission at the end of the day is going to make a, a fair and, and, and uh, you know, accurate decision and we'll see we'll see what happens we're going to have to wait long anyway because <laughs> yeah. it's finishing this year and we're, we're already uh past uh half uh, we're halfway through through the year so yeah uh, it's less than six months now to find out and uh but of course if the uk is not adequate then it's a serious situation because it's like mm -hmm. we find ourselves in a in in the third country shoes like the us with all the challenges that that brings yeah, I'm sure that's the situation everybody, everybody will be trying to avoid. Um, no guarantees over whether we can, obviously. But yeah, nice. Good, really good point to end on, I think, um, with a kind of look ahead to what we might see in the second half of this year. So uh, we've we've covered quite a lot today. I think we've got into some really interesting points on exactly what happened, why impact on people. But of course, there's so much more to, to talk about, not just on Shrems too, but everything we, we talk about normally in, in that privacy podcast. So um we will be organizing another another pod and what can we hope to to cover in terms of other topics in, in that podcast what are you guys thinking about in terms of other areas that privacy pros are thinking about struggling with or want some insight well yeah there, there are other issues in addition to international data transfers um uh, so of all the chapters in the in the gdpr that's just one one of them but aside from the gdpr of course we have the whole e-privacy debate, which uh, has been very alive in in recent times, and it comes and goes. And we know now that Germany is at the presidency of the Council of the EU, so therefore has responsibility for taking the, the Council draft further. And the big question is whether we're going to see any progress being made on that. But in the meantime, what we know is that the data protection authorities are also paying attention to to the e-privacy side of things and and, uh, and we know for example how different authorities have been dealing with cookie consent and that is very much a, a live issue today that we mustn't forget about and um, what about you alexis i know you've been working on some new projects recently stuff around standards and kind of frameworks that are used by companies uh, also loads of stuff on LGPD. What else do you think we could hope to, to cover in the next podcast or you know, talk to, talk to privacy professionals about in the next few months? That last point of yours um, on the LGPD, particularly looking forward to, I think um, we should be in a more final by the time we meet. We've still got a few weeks to see whether it's going to be fully postponed until next year or whether it will actually enter into effect in mid-August as planned. Um, but we do know that the sanctions element um, has already been postponed. So I'm quite looking forward to seeing where we land with that. I think the other thing that will be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of months and hopefully we'll see some more guidance on is related to Eduardo's point on the e-privacy regulation um, indirectly is um, the existing e-privacy directive in terms of um, cookies. So we've seen so much guidance come out from uh, regulators over the last six months, 12 months, but you know, recently 
you know, in, in May, we had the EDPB update to its guidelines on consent, and that pulled in some mm -hmm. elements regarding cookie consent and cookie walls. We had the CANIL guidance also receive a review by the Council d'Etat in France, which, you know, said some interesting things uh, in terms of the fact that the CANIL would, wasn't able to provide a blanket prohibition through guidance through that particular mechanism not necessarily around the prohibition of cookie wars itself. So I think we're at a little bit of an interesting state of play at the moment around that, especially given, you know, other global developments from, you know, in, in relation to third party cookies and some of the uh, responses that we're seeing from, you know, other organizations out there. So I'll be I'll be keen to see how that conversation develops over the next couple of months. I was actually on a webinar with the uh, DPC earlier this week or last week. I can't remember which. <laughs> and this is a big, big priority for for the commission there. And they're expecting to see organizations take appropriate measures or implement appropriate measures over the next four or five months because it will start enforcement activity come the beginning of October. Um, and that was something that was highlighted by the DPC and they were quite clear about. So I think, you know, there's a lot for, <laughs> there's a lot for organizations to be looking at at the moment. And yesterday's decision just, you know, it's just another day in privacy um, at the moment. Uh, it just doesn't stop moving. Never a dull day. Work is never, never done. Never a dull day. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, well, that's brilliant. So we've got a few things to, to think about for our, our next podcast. Certainly uh, a lot more we could be talking about. So if you've enjoyed today, if you've enjoyed listening to that privacy podcast, please get in touch. Um, you can tell us your ideas for topics that you're interested in and you'd like us to, to, to chew over. And we'd certainly love to, to hear from you. Apart from that, I wish everybody uh, well before we, we speak again. Hope you all stay safe. Hope everybody is uh, progressing well in the, in the situations you're in. And uh, we look forward to connecting again uh, in the near future. So thanks from myself, David Longford, from Eduardo Ustran at Hogan Levels, and Alexis Kalafidis at One Trust Daily Guidance. Take care. Thank you so much, both. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by One Trust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells.